a very complex subject, but it's, it's, um, it'll be good. It's going to be eye-opening for us. And in the same token, um, after the sermon, I'm going to open up for any questions that anyone may have. I don't do that often, but given the nature of today's sermon, I'm just going to tell you all, take out your pen and paper or your iPhones and take good notes today as we take a look at the passage before us, beginning in verse 11, Acts 19.11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you once again for this privilege that I have to stand in your pulpit and to open your word to your people. And, O Lord, I look to you that your Holy Spirit would come upon me, overshadow me, cleanse my mind and my heart, and use my lips as a mouthpiece for yourself. Speak to our hearts, O Lord, and instruct us in these uh, passages on the topic of the occult and demonology. And I pray, O Lord, that we would be sensitive to understanding this subject with wisdom. In Christ's name, amen. So last week we had a great celebration for uh, Reformation Sunday, didn't we? It was was also, of course, happened to be uh, one of those Sundays where Halloween also felt on the same day as Reformation Sunday, which it originally was. It was October 31st, All Hallows' Eve. That's where we get the name Halloween from. So originally it was a Christian celebration, and it's been obviously corrupted like everything else in the world, and seized by the world, and secularized, commercialized. And now Halloween has become a symbol of evil and the occult and demonology and all kinds of wicked stuff and you see people decorate their houses with skulls and crossbones and you know horror movie uh, marathons are on tv and and um you know for actually witches and people who practice witchcraft which still exists there's a a religion of wicca that exists and i'll talk about that in a moment in america it's it's one of their high holy days they pra- they actually hold seances and have parades and have great celebrations um, in fact, if you go down to New York City on Halloween, the LGBT parade takes place right in uh, Christopher Street down in uh, uh, Greenwich Village, and it's a big event for the LGBT community as well. So clearly, Halloween has taken a much different meaning than it originally did. But one of the things that brings the concern out is, is that uh, this, this topic of the occult and evil and uh, magic um, I want to just I want to address this today because magic and the occult have been around as long as the Bible's been around, um, and to think that magic and the occult has gone away or it's part of an old society is just quite frankly wrong, and that is because as long as God has a people who worship Him, Satan also has a people who worship Him, and as a result, magic and witchcraft and the dark arts has enchanted sinners. For ages, because it offers them empowerment, it offers them a sense of uh, strength apart from God, where they can feel comfortable in their sin and rebel against God. Now, in recent times, magic and the occult have enjoyed a popular resurgence in American society. 
If you recall, in the birth of American society, witches were pretty much uh, banned and, and persecuted and, and burned. And we know the whole story of the Salem witch trials, and some people were falsely accused. Uh, but we have come a long way from that. We have become very secularized. Now, while they're in foreign countries like Haiti or Puerto Rico, you may have uh, cults like voodoo and Santeria um, that are still dominating the lives of certain people groups. There is a meteoric rise in America. From 1990 to 2008, Trinity College in Connecticut ran three large detailed religion surveys And those have shown that Wicca grew tremendously over this period. From an estimated 8,000 Wiccans in 1990, they found that there were 340,000 practitioners by 2008. There were also estimated around 340,000 pagans, neo-pagans, I should call them, in 2008. And although Trinity College hasn't run a survey since 2008, The Pew Research Center picked up the baton in 2014 and found that 0.4% of Americans, or around 1 to 1.5 million people, identify as Wiccan or Pagan, which suggests continued robust growth for these communities. Just as recently as uh, about three months ago, I was reading an article in The Atlantic where um, witchcraft stores are popping up all over Manhattan now, selling crystals, selling spell books, selling potions, selling all kinds of mystical uh, um, talismans To uh, as people are becoming more and more uh, attracted to this religion. In one quote from Quartz Magazine, the author writes, the rise of practicing witches and neo-pagans are mostly among millennial women. Witchcraft is the perfect religion for liberal millennials who are already involved in yoga and meditation and mindfulness and new age spirituality. With that foundation, they might show up for pagan holidays, new moon gatherings, or begin to explore more serious spiritual concepts at the root of these practices. I think we see this not only happening on a popular level, but we see it in popular culture as well. No doubt there is a lot of money to be made in the Hollywood and in the book industry. Not too long ago, I went to the bookstore with my daughters to get some books for them to read. And we were in Barnes & Nobles, went to the teen section, and I was, I was kind of saddened because almost every book was involved in some way in magic, dark arts, or mysticism. Um, if you don't think that there is some kind of agenda there, then you are sadly mistaken. And so, well, what's so hard about reading some of those books? What's so bad about Harry Potter? Well, I don't think Harry Potter's going to lead you to hell. But what it does is present a very innocent and harmless version of the occult and witchcraft, which could be an entrance for people to go further down the road and explore things that could be, quite frankly, much more dangerous. That brings us to today's passage, because in today's passage, we are in the heart of the occult in the ancient world, and that is Ephesus. If Corinth was known for its licentiousness, and if Philippi was known for its military might, Ephesus was known in the ancient world as the center and capital of the occult. It's where every magician, it's where every sorcerer, it's where anyone who practiced the dark arts went because this was where it all took place. In fact, it was the site of the Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, The Temple of Artemis uh, was a magnificent structure, 127 marbled pillars, rose 60 feet to support the gorgeous ceiling, many of them inlaid with gold and rare gems, and the temple's huge canopy covering 425 feet in length and 200 feet wide. In the midst of the temple was a multi-breasted statue of Artemis, also known as Diana in the Roman pantheon. And this statue of gold was said to have fallen from the stars of heaven, and people would come from all over Asia to worship Artemis the Great. The temple was the center of a thriving cult and a worship complex that supported a large commercial enterprise as well. And so Ephesus became the collecting place of the superstitious the magicians, the dark arts, and the cesspool of the occult. And so we come to this city, and we see that Paul had been preaching there. 
God had given him great power. God had given him success. He sets up shop by renting a public lecture hall. Far from running from the city, he stays there and he, he commits himself to preaching. He's making tents in the morning, preaching in the afternoon, preaching on the Lord's Day. And he continues to do the work of ministry. And the gospel is being spread. People from all over Asia hearing. Now, what I think is very interesting here is that a lot of people were being converted. And a lot of people became Christians. But a lot of people were still holding on to some of the dark arts. As we read in the end of the chapter, it says that when they saw all that transpired, the believers, not the unbelievers, the believers were coming in and saying, wow, we have these magic books and spell books. We're going to burn them. And there was repentance and revival. And so what we saw was that a lot of the old way still hadn't came off of the people. And I think this is the case for many people. We come to Christ, we believe in him, but we hang on to our old ways. We, we hold on to things that are no good for us and they bring us down and they prevent the power of God from being released in our lives. And so in this case, I want to see um, what goes on in this passage. We want to contrast the power of Christ with the power of Satan. We want to we we see the difference between the supremacy of Christ versus the failure of the occult and the failure of the demonics. And so we want to see that contrast and comparison and ask the question at the end of the sermon, should we be dabbling in any of that kind of stuff? Or should we be more cautious? You know, how many Christians are, maybe we'll, we'll go and read the astrology section of the newspaper, or we'll uh, go to a fortune teller and have them read their tarot cards, not realizing that you are dabbling with things that you are not aware of are dangerous and you're opening up a door to Satan and his horde of demons. So let's begin first by looking at the extraordinary miracles of God in verse 11 through 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, Luke tells us. So even his handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them. And evil spirits came out. And so immediately one of the first things we see is Luke is... Uh, opens up this section by emphasizing the supremacy of Christ. Uh, we see that in, 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 in league with Paul's successful preaching ministry, there is a, a successful miracle ministry. And so remember, Luke is a physician. Luke is a doctor, so he's a scientist. Luke doesn't necessarily call something a miracle unless it's a bona fide miracle. Not only does he say that there are many miracles being worked by Paul, but they're extraordinary miracles. These are beyond the ordinary signs and wonders that are being uh, uh, um, performed by Paul as validating signs of the gospel's authenticity. But these are extraordinary miracles. These are beyond uh, any explanation. And, and so what we see here is that uh, Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons are being used uh, to heal people from a distance. Now, the word handkerchief is a poor translation in English. It's actually a, a sweat rag would be the proper translation. It was a rag that uh, workers would use to wipe the sweat from their brow. Um, and in this case, the apron would have been that apron that Paul used for his tent making. So what we're seeing here is that Paul is a tent maker and his aprons and sweat rags uh, were, being, were being lent to and given to people to be used so that if they even touched the sweat rag, or if they even touched the apron, instantly they were healed, demons came out of them, and God was magnified. The name of Jesus was magnified. But I want to address this for a minute because, unfortunately, like all of these areas in the Bible where we see whether it's speaking in tongues or healing handkerchiefs, you know, modern-day people tend to read that which is descriptive and think that it's prescriptive. Well, if it happened then, it's got to happen now. I don't. If you stay up late enough and put on TV at two in the morning, you'll see the infomercials. I can't even remember half the names of these guys, but you've seen them before. Call up right now, and for the low price of fifty dollars, I will send you this healing handkerchief. It's been dipped in the Jordan River, and I've prayed over it. And if you have enough faith and send me your money, I will mail you this handkerchief and a little bit of water with it, and it will heal you of your diseases. Well, like P.T. Barnum said, there's a sucker born every moment, isn't there? And there's enough suckers to buy those healing handkerchiefs. But I could tell you there's nothing healing about 
those handkerchiefs. Those are hucksters and those are charlatans. Those are the servants of Satan. And they're deceiving people and taking their money. Paul never took a dime or a penny from anyone. Paul did this of his goodwill and for the, for the sake of the gospel. See, we have to remember something, that these signs and miracles are not prescriptive of the church's practice throughout history. These are extraordinary uh, uh, miracles in extraordinary times. These is not the ordinary way in which God works. Particularly, these were the signs of an apostle, an office that terminated 2,000 years ago. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. They are the signs of a true apostle. The authentication of the office of apostle was that they alone had the ability to perform great signs and wonders as, as, as verifying that they were indeed apostles of Jesus Christ and that their message was directly from God. They were not making up stories, but they were God's ambassadors, God's messengers, God's spokesmen. And so God granted them this, this miracle-performing uh, um, ministry for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the truth of God's word. These healers on TV are phonies, they're fakes, they're frauds, and we ought not to ever uh, pay into any of that. Uh, See, unlike these dishonest televangelists, Paul was an honest man. Paul was a tent maker by trade. He wasn't seeking to make money off religion. Paul worked, and the sweat of his own brow was on that rag. And I think that one author points out something very important here, is that is that this was a sign and symbol of Paul's ministry and his humility. Now listen to this one quote. The hankies and aprons were symbols God chose to employ in order to underscore the characteristic of the apostle which made him a channel of the power of God. In the same way, Moses' rod was a symbol. There was nothing magic about the rod itself. It was a symbol of Moses which God honored. So these sweatbands and trade aprons were symbols of the honest, dignified humility of heart, the servant character which manifested and released the power of God, end quote. And so these were symbols. These were symbols of Paul, a humble servant of God. This wasn't no mighty golden rod. It was a, a sweat, a sweatband and an apron showing the hard work of a man who cared about the gospel and cared about people. On the other hand, there are some liberal critics who totally dismiss these texts as unbelievable. Well, that couldn't have been possible. This must have been added or imagined. But again, as I said, Luke is a physician. Luke is a scientist, and he's an accurate historian. Luke is not going to record anything here that is not true. Furthermore, we come into the exorcisms. And uh, these handkerchiefs were not only used to bring healing to people, but also to exercise demons out of many. Now, in a city that's so obsessed with the occult, no doubt there are going to be many demon-possessed people in this town. Now, demon possession and sickness seem to go hand-in-hand a lot in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. In, In the Lord's public ministry, many times he casts out demons and sicknesses were involved. When the woman with the issue of blood for 18 years was healed, she touched the hem of Jesus' garment He says now she's been loosed. She's been in bondage to Satan for 18 years. Now, this doesn't mean that every time you're sick, there's some demonic activity. But it does mean that when there's demonic activity, sickness is usually hand in hand. All right, let me kind of make that clear. There's times when people are sick and there's no demonic activity. There's a pure healing. But there's other times when both sickness and demonization go hand in hand. We don't quite understand how that works, but it does happen at times. And so now with this said, now that we see the authentication and the supremacy of Christ in the working of these signs and wonders, we see the contrast of that. The contrast is false teachers, false exorcists, and false signs and wonders. And how it actually led to a, a, a very horrifying example that God made of these Jewish exorcists who thought they were pretty clever. And so we read about Sceva's seven sons. Uh, The text says he was a high priest. Clearly he was not the high priest of Jerusalem, 
Um, but there were um, these were probably a group of it tells us itinerant Jewish exorcists uh, that kind of went off on their own. Now, Jewish exorcists were not that common in the first century. However, they were uh, uh, around, and they made quite a pretty penny with their trade. Uh, they claimed to have special knowledge on how to pronounce the secret name of God. Right? We we debate Yahweh, Jehovah. No one really ever knew the correct pronunciation of the name of God because it was never spelled out uh, correctly. We have just the consonants, the tetragrammaton. They claimed to have a special knowledge and therefore power over the satanic realm. And they would charge quite a bit of money. So these Jewish exorcists, seeing the power of God through Paul and through the preaching of Jesus, look at it and say, okay, well, here's something, a new magical incantation. If we just invoke the name of Jesus and invoke the name of Paul, well, clearly we'll have a successful business and, and we'll, uh, we'll continue to ply our trade. And they were fascinated by what was going on. And so they looked to, uh, to capitalize on it and the Lord would make an unforgettable example. And let's read here. It says these seven sons of Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered them all and overpowered them, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's pretty serious. They confronted a demon-possessed man, and they invoked the name of Jesus. Why didn't the demon respond? Don't they bow to the name of Jesus? Well, it says, he says, Jesus, we know. And Paul, we recognize, we, we recognize as a servant of Christ, who are you? You see, they were unbelievers. These were people who were not subject to Jesus Christ. These were men who did not honor Christ. These were men who did not believe in Christ, and they thought they could use the name of Jesus as a magical spell to cast out demons. And the demon's like, uh-uh. Christ will not give people any authority over the demonic realm who are not themselves subject to Jesus Christ. If you're not under the authority of Christ, you will have no authority over the demonic realm. And so these men dabbled and messed with something that they didn't understand. They messed with something they shouldn't have messed with. It ended pretty bad. This one man beat up all seven of them. One man beat up seven grown men. Not only did he give them the beating of their lives, but it says they left their house naked and wounded there. It means bleeding. They left the house. When you leave, when you step out of a fight naked and bleeding, guess what? You lost. That was pretty serious and frightening to say the least. The demon was not expelled, but overpowered them. So what does this teach us? It teaches us a few things. Number one, demons are not fictional creatures. Demons are real. Demons are not fictional creatures. Demons are real. They are fallen angels is what they are. They were created by God originally as angels to worship him. At one time, Satan himself was an angel. He was one of the archangels of heaven. Uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 describe uh, the majesty of his angelhood but satan was filled with pride and puffed up and exalted himself to be equal to god scripture tells us about it in romans 12 7 through 9 and now war arose in heaven and michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down the ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And a few verses earlier, it tells us that his tail swept a third of the host of heaven. So one third of the angelic realm followed Satan's deception in rebellion against God. But Satan was defeated soundly and he and all of his angels were cast down to the earth. Now some, Peter tells us, are in chains of darkness until the day of judgment but there are others who are 
um, cosmic powers of the air and they're roaming the earth. As we know, Satan is roaming the earth like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so in this world, and this happened before the fall because obviously Satan was present in the garden, uh, not as an angel, but he was present as a demonic and evil force to oppose the work of God. So how do demons, what are their, what are their purpose, what do they do? Well, because they hate God and because they're the enemy of God and, and they're, uh, Satan's name is, is, is clear as our opponent, our adversary, our accuser, um, we know that the devil will always try to take God's people away from him and instead of worshiping God, worshiping Satan. Now, now there's clear people, there's clearly people who worship Satan directly. I think it was in Minnesota, a, a statue to Satan was erected for Satan worshipers as a, you know, as a Paisley saying, freedom of speech, you can have a statue to God, we'll have a statue to Satan, and they got it. Um, Harvard University, founded by evangelical Protestants, I think it was a, several years ago, began to have a week of Satan worship every year. Every year they celebrate a week of Satanism where they teach Satanism. This is overt Satan worship. But Satan is also the, the master of disguise. He's not called a deceiver for anything. The whole purpose of deception is to fool you, to trick you, to make you think you're doing one thing, but you're really doing the other. And the biggest trick of Satan of all is to make you think you're worshiping some true God when, in fact, you're worshiping Satan himself. Well, that's what happened in the, under the Old Covenant, um, and that's what Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 32.17. He speaks of pagans and idolaters. He says they sacrificed to who? Demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers have never dreaded. Okay, so, so when Moses was addressing the people of Israel about idolatry, he said, listen, you worshiping those idols, those religions are really worshiping demons. You're worshiping false, you're worshiping fallen angels. In 1 Corinthians 10, 20, Paul says the same thing in the New Covenant. He says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to what? Demons and not to God. So people think they're worshiping gods, but they're worshiping Satan. They're worshiping demons. And he says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. Okay? Demons also express themselves, express themselves through heresy and false doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons and through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Okay? So this is... This is something that takes place is that there is demonic activity in false doctrine. So all the heresies, all the false teachers that are out there that are fooling people and deceiving people are all energized by the devil. They're filled with Satan. And, and you're following the doctrine of demons when you follow those doctrines. In fact, this is one of Satan's greatest strategies. If Satan can't defeat the church by outright violence and, and oppression, he'll do it through subversion. He'll do it through, through counterfeiting the true church. He'll do it through uh, deceit and through cleverness. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible tell us that in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, When Paul speaks of false apostles, he says, For such men are... False apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Satan doesn't go around with a red pointy tail and horns and red skin and, and with a big mustache that he's twirling. That's not what Satan looks like. Satan comes across as an angel of light. When Muhammad walked in that cave and thought he beheld the angel Gabriel in a bright light, and he gave him instructions on this awful religion we call Islam, that wasn't God, that was Satan. No, Satan, Satan appears as beautiful, attractive. He appears as one and he deceives us as one who offers us all that's good and, and right. He's very deceptive, which is why our powers of discernment must be trained.
The common denominator of the work of Satan and his demonic angels is to oppose the work of God and his people. Demons operate through unbelievers. Unbelievers are influenced and in many cases, in some cases, possessed by demons. So that brings us to the subject of demonization. If you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you are under the sway or the influence of the evil one, 1 John 5.19 tells us. All unbelievers, people that do not know Jesus, that are not born again, that do not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, whether you believe it or not, you are a pawn of the devil. You are under Satan's influence. You are used by him. You're a tool for Satan. You don't believe me? Look at Ephesians 2 for a moment. In Ephesians 2, it says, And you were once dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. Okay, that was part. It's talking about our life before Christ, when we were unbelievers. And you were following the course of this world, following what? The prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. Notice, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That working means energizing. It means Satan, the spirit of the devil, is energizing and working in the lives of unbelievers. And so if you're an empty vessel, you're a vessel for Satan. And so Satan will use violence and oppression. He'll use subversion and tactics. And, and you'll see it. Demonic activity is very obvious. Demonic activity hates God. Demons hate God. They hate the truth. And they will resist. They will fight. And you'll recognize demonic activity in other people around you. When you talk about God or pray about God or try to pray with them or talk to them about God, they'll erupt in anger, they'll curse, they'll blaspheme, they'll drop F-bombs with the name of God. Why? Because it's the demon in them. It's Satan. What about exorcisms? Unfortunately, the church has garnered a bad reputation recently for many false exorcisms where people are injured or hurt or there's sensationalism, uh, making movies and whatnot. But there's never been a time like recent days where there's such a rise of demonic activity. So we have to ask ourselves some questions. How do we know someone is demon-possessed? What are some signs? How do we distinguish between demon possession and mental illness? How do we, how do we distinguish between demon possession and just outright sinfulness? Well, for one thing, someone who's demon-possessed is going to show signs of superhuman strength. When they went into, when these seven sons of Sceva went to exercise this man, one man beat the daylights out of seven grown men and sent them out naked and bleeding. That's not, you know, unless you're Bruce Lee, that just doesn't happen, okay? Unless, unless you are someone who's extraordinarily uh, agile in martial arts, that's not going to happen. It says he overpowered them. He mastered them. This was somebody with superhuman strength. He was energized by the devil. So that's one of the telltale signs of someone is that they have superhuman strength. This was also the case of the uh, 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 demoniac in Mark chapter 5. Um, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, it tells us in Mark 5, 2, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, and he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Okay, so, so one of the first signs we look for in, in someone who's demonized is superhuman strength and also a self-destructive behavior, self-destructive behavior. When someone has a demon, the demon's goal is to destroy the image of God in that person, to, 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 to ruin that person's life through self-harm, whether uh, the demoniac in, uh, in, in Mark 5 was cutting himself and trying to, 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 to kill himself. He would bang his head against the wall. Um, it could be behaviors. Uh, uh, I, I have often seen people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. You, you have to consider how much demonization is involved there where it's so self-destructive that people ruin their lives. In Mark chapter 9, verse 17 through 18, we see an example of this. 
when um, a man brought his son before the Lord, he says, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So there's some, some very unusual behavior. This could be confused for epilepsy, but clearly these are, these are spiritual attacks. These are seizures on the human body that are attributed to demonic influence. Another important sign about those who are under demonic influence is, as I said before, they will become very enraged and irritable at any Christian ministry and will relax violently with obscenity and blasphemy. But last but not least is that someone who is demonized lose their identity. They don't know who they are anymore. The identity of the demon takes over. Remember in Mark 5, 9, going back to the demoniac there, Jesus asked him, what's your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. One way is you can know if someone's demonized, say, what's your name? If the person can't answer what their name is or they give another name, then you know something's wrong. Do demonizations still happen? Absolutely. I've seen them. And it's pretty frightening. So what do you do when you encounter someone who's demonized? What should we do? Well, it depends on the situation. For one thing, I want to let you know, if you are a born-again believer and if you're a spirit-filled Christian and you're submissive to the authority of Christ, you have nothing to fear, for Christ has given you power over the evil one. You do not need to call the Church of Rome to ask for an exorcist to come and sprinkle holy water on someone. What did Luther say? One little word shall fell him. In Luke ten seventeen, when the Lord gave the disciples, sent the 70 disciples out to preach the gospels as they returned, boasting about how even the demons obeyed them. The demons are subject to us in your name because Jesus gave them power over them. Verse 19. Throughout Acts, we have examples of exorcisms, not just from Paul, but Peter and Philip. And Paul himself tells us that we have this power as well. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We have the power to destroy strongholds. That's talking about demonic activity in someone's life. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, writing to the Ephesians, but against what? Rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. we got to recognize, we've got to recognize that demonic activity is more common than you think. You're surrounded by unbelievers, you're going to see more demonic activity. It's in false religion, it's in false gospels. It's in the world. It's prevalent all around you. And sometimes it expresses itself more than others. And so therefore, we ought to be all the more careful we don't go running to the occult in areas where we just open the door wide open for more of it in our lives. Let me give you a few points to remember. Number one, our authority over Satan depends on our submission to the authority of Christ. These seven sons of Sceva were not recognized because they didn't recognize the authority of Jesus in their lives. They were tampering with something they shouldn't have. Now, I'm going to warn you, if you're not a Christian, be very careful. But even if you are a Christian and you're living outside of God's will and you're not in submission to God's will, you ought not really to be confronting demonic activity. You may be opening yourself up to danger yourself. Christ is not going to give you authority over darkness if you yourself are in darkness. Peter spoke of false teachers who tampered with such matters in 2 Peter 2, 10-11. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. This is speaking of false teachers tampering with things they don't know. Secondly, any authority we do derive over demonic activity is because of Christ and his name. The demons bow to the name of Jesus. They're they're frightened of the name of Jesus. They flee at the name of Jesus. And it's because of the name of Christ and because of 
his work on the cross that Satan and his host are subject to the church. We can have absolute confidence when we confront demonic activity by simply rebuking them in the name of Christ, by simply praying God bind these forces of darkness and trusting that the Lord will do so. Colossians 2.15 tells us he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ already has the victory. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated the devils. Thirdly, when confronted with true demonization, we have to realize that they have more to fear than we do. It tells us in 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he is of the world. Our method is very simple. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And finally, in extreme cases, going back to Mark 9, the demonized boy could not be healed by the apostles. The apostles said, Lord, why couldn't we cast out the demon? He says, this kind only comes out with fasting and prayer. Sometimes it requires a more dedicated time of prayer and fasting and commitment to see God's work. Finally, well, one more thing I should say, not finally, but one more thing added to this as a note of caution Let me just remind you of this. If you are a believer, you cannot be possessed by a demon. Let me just repeat that. There are some people who teach and preach that as a Christian, you could be possessed by a demon. You cannot be possessed by a demon. Why? Because the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit indwells us. And where the Holy Spirit takes residence and indwells permanently, he does not share his residence with demons. The door is shut, it is closed. Whereas unbelievers are an open vessel, there is a closed door in your life. So I know people that I care about who have been influenced by bad Pentecostal churches and bad Pentecostal teaching, and they're believers and they're afraid that they're going to get possessed by demons all the time. You cannot, let me repeat, you cannot be possessed by a demon if you are a child of God. Finally, Point three, the Ephesian response. What happens? Well, after the seven sons of Sceva got their beating and ran for their lives, the people responded with great fear. Kind of like Ananias and Sapphira when God struck them dead. When God does something mighty like this, it, it it sends a surge through people. People get shook. And it tells us in verse 17, it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, fear fell upon them all. And this is the beautiful thing. The name of Jesus was extolled. The name of Jesus was magnified. You see, when the work of God is manifest, the whole point is not to bring attention to self. It's to bring attention to Jesus. It's all about magnifying the name of Jesus. I want to ask you a question. When you see the hand of God come down on someone and you see his power manifested in some way. This was a judgment that took place on the seven sons of Sceva. How do we react? Do we fear God? Do we exalt the name of Jesus? Or do we just go back to our old ways? Well, the Ephesians responded even greater, the Christians there. It says, many of those who are now believers, verse 18, came and confessing and divulged their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And he counted the value of them and found there 50,000 pieces of silver. In modern terms, 50,000 pieces of silver is $50 million. The Ephesian spell books in the ancient world were known. They were called grammata in Greek. They were known to be the most expensive and the most sought-after spell books and magic books in the ancient world. So these Christians had these very valuable spell books they weren't willing to part with yet. And when they saw all that happened and they saw the demonic activity, they realized these books had no value at all. See, I mean, I want you to think about it. They could have sold those spell books and made some good money on it. But they didn't want to perpetuate the evil in those books to other people. And so they were willing to sacrifice and give up something of great monetary value to demonstrate 
what I call true repentance. True repentance is when you're willing to give up something very valuable for the sake of having Christ. They wanted Christ and they wanted to serve Christ and honor him no matter what the cost. That's what being a Christian is. What good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? And so these believers came together like the old tent revivals. And this is, we saw this back in the 19th century tent revivals. People come and burn all their secular things that held them back. Now imagine if we did that today. What could we burn? Well, you know what we could do is ask the Lord to burn out any of the things in our life that are unpleasing to him. We won't see the power of God unleashed because it's exactly what happened until we do so, until there's true repentance. It says in verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. When God's people repent, when God's people forsake the things in their lives that are holding them back from what they could be, God's work is hindered. God's work will be unhindered and released when his people repent and turn from the things holding them back. I don't know what's holding you back this morning, I have an idea of some of the things holding me back. But oh, if we would just repent and let go of it all, we'd see God's power in our lives. We'd see prayers answered. We'd see the church filled. We'd see, we'd see things happening. We'd see the majesty and supremacy of Christ and extraordinary things. We fail to see because we hold on to that which is not valuable. Let me conclude by saying this. There's a warning in all of this. The bigger picture here is obviously the supremacy and glory of Christ and magnifying his name. But I want you to think about and be warned about magic, the dark arts, and mysticism. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18. When God had sent his people to Canaan, God was very concerned that his people would learn the ways of the Canaanites. In the ways of the Canaanites, remember, they were influenced by Satan and demons. And so God was very careful towards people, don't get entangled with these things. Read with me here in verse Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. God says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter in an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. I am warning each and every one of you. Don't listen to those kind of people. Don't go to diviners. Don't go to fortune tellers. Don't have tarot cards read. Don't try to go to dream interpreters. Don't try to read too much into stuff. It's not of God. The devil is crafty and clever. And he could fool people. Let me tell you something. If a statue of Mary that people flock to and worship and turn their idolatry away from Christ to Mary brings about a couple of healings, who's glorified? Christ? No. Satan has taken everybody's attention away from Christ and put it on the devil. Well, I shouldn't say on the devil, but on, on an idol. And we have to see through the veneer and the deception of it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Lord, before we close, oh Lord, if there's any questions that rest on anyone's heart, may it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we close in a song, I did want to open this up. I don't do this often. We have a microphone. But if anyone has any questions regarding the sermon you just heard, uh, please feel free to raise your hand. I know it's a topic that uh, is not discussed often, so I wanted to give opportunity for anyone who would like to ask a question. Anyone? Brother Anthony.
Mm -hmm. Very good. So that the difference between what's descriptive and prescriptive. So when Luke is describing a situation like these extraordinary miracles of Paul, this is descriptive. It's telling us of something taking place. It's not commanding or prescribing that this is what the church ought to do. In other words, just because this happened once doesn't mean this is a pattern. Uh, in fact, we don't see a pattern of this developing, not even in the New Testament, never mind into the church age. So uh, we have to di differentiate between something that's descriptive. So, you know, 1 Corinthians 11 is prescriptive when it tells us how we're to conduct and practice the Lord's Supper. You know, what does Paul say? Just as it's been given to me, it's given to you that on the night the Lord was betrayed and we get on to the whole Lord's Supper. It was a tradition that's handed down and prescribed. This is a description of an event that is uh, very unusual and extraordinary, in fact, that took place. Thank you. Any questions? Dan? Somebody get a mic to Dan? Hold on, Dan, so we could all hear you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's a very that's a very difficult passage, right? Yeah, that's so that that's um, for for what for those who didn't hear, Dan is referring to the part in the Old Testament where where Saul, right before the day he dies, consults with a with a witch, which is forbidden by the law. Now, he's already broken every commandment there is, and he consults with the witch of Endor about how the battle is going to go the next day, and and uh, the witch supposedly brings back. Samuel from the dead, his ghost appears and warns Daniel, uh, I mean, warns uh, Samuel, Saul of the impending, his impending death. Uh, well, well, there's two, two uh, approaches to that. Um, a lot of people believe that it wasn't Samuel at all, that it was uh, a demon that posed as Samuel. Um, because if, if Samuel went to rest with God and was in heaven, um, how could a witch who is representative of Satan and evil invoke or overpower the soul of Samuel and bring him back from the dead. Um, you know, so that's, that's, some have suggested it might, the Lord permitted this to bring judgment on Saul. We're not quite sure what it is, but for the most part, again, we're forbidden from seeking necromancers. We're forbidden from trying to speak and consult with the dead. So there's the medium in Long Island, I think the TV show was on some years ago, where people contacted her and want to speak to my dead relatives. And she'll say, well, I know this and this and this about you. Well, how do you know all that? It must be my dead relative. Well, guys, demons are all over the place. And demons see all and they know all their invisible creatures. They have quite a hefty knowledge of what's going on in the world. And so they can easily repeat things that happen in your life and pretend to be a loved one and deceive you. And so we have to be careful when, when we engage in this kind of stuff. Someone else had a question. Yeah. Um, Fifi. Yes. I always have argument with my husband at home about um, miracles. I do believe in miracles. Him is like. So I always said, um, the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh-huh. If he uses Paul to do miracles, it means he, he can still use, you know, Ben of God also to do miracles. So, as a Christian nowadays, can we still believe in miracles? It's a good question, right? So, the word miracle actually never appears in the Bible. It's uh, um, the word signs and wonders often appear. So, you know, throughout, throughout uh, redemption history, there are periods of time where God enables his servants to perform great signs and wonders. Usually, these, these posts throughout redemption history at our times when God is bringing special revelation. And so those agents of revelation, like, for instance, Moses. Moses performed great signs and wonders and miracles. He's an agent of revelation, bringing the law to Israel. 
All right? And then, of course, you see again with Elijah. He, again, great signs and wonders and miracles um, to validate and authenticate the prophetic ministry as he begins the school of the prophets. Thus saith the Lord. Um, and then, of course, the time of Christ, which is the ultimate revelation, right? In the past times, God has spoken to us in diverse ways through our fathers and the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the signs and wonders are signs. The word sign means pointing to something other than itself to validate and authenticate the agent of revelation, thus validating God's word and communication. Now, these miracles or these signs and wonders, such as raising people from the dead or healing someone bored with congenital blindness, um, you know, things that of this nature are very rare and extraordinary and happened during these periods of history. This is, there is subsidiary uh, uh, manifestation of miracles in modern times? Yes, but not in the way that we've seen it during periods of, of, of revelation when God is revealing his word to his people, but rather we see it in cases where God's people come together and they pray and they seek the Lord and they pray for a person, and when God hears those prayers, he's the healer, he answers us. And through the stripes and wounds of Christ, we are healed and we see the healing work of God. I've seen people who had cancer diagnosis and, and through God's prayer and mediation, that diagnosis disappeared. You know, I've seen people with tumors that were shrunk through prayer and intercession of God's people. But in terms of someone going down to uh, Madison Square Garden and claiming they're a faith healer and taking off their jacket and whipping people and knocking them down... That's a charlatan. That's a, that's a phony because pe those people are only there to make the money. They're, they're preaching a false gospel. They're lying and they're deceiving people. But God does still heal people and there are still works. I wouldn't call them miracles in the, in the, in the narrow sense, but in a broad sense, yes, they're works of God. God still brings healing and touches people's lives. Are we going to see the Red Sea parted? No. Are we going to see someone raised from the dead? I mean, people claim these things. I'll give you an example. Some years ago, there was a, a man I met up in Valhalla doing evangelism, and he claimed to me that he was in a wheelchair and that uh, some faith healer touched him and he was crippled his whole life. And, and I, I said, wow, that's amazing. I, I, said, I said, I'd love to get together with you. I'd, I'd I says, maybe you could come to my church. I'd love to see your, your medical history and show me all the, that happened. I'd love to see, you know, your, your records, your, your x-rays, and so we could present. I never, call, never returned my phone calls. You know, we have to be discerning. People could say anything they want. The, the greatest miracle of all is when God takes a sinner hardened in his heart, darkened in his mind, fast bound into hell and gives them a new heart and they turn to Christ and they repent. That's the greatest miracle of all. Uh, ben had a question? Yeah, I was just uh, reminded of Deuteronomy 13 where it says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For mm -hmm. the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So, like, even if, even if these people are not charlatans and they do perform some sort of sign or wonder, if you examine their theology and it's whack, it's not, if they're not <laughs> preaching the gospel, then you know, well, that's cool, but so what? You heal people, but they're still going to hell. So you're just making their descent to hell more comfortable. So it's like we have to give these things not materially, but, but spiritually. Like, are their souls healed or are there just physical ailments healed? Well, I, I'm of the persuasion, Ben, that there are no real healings apart from God. I don't believe Satan could heal. Satan is here to steal, kill, and destroy. But what I do believe is in false signs and wonders. So, you know, Satan is not an Satan cannot perform true signs and wonders because he is a counterfeit and he's limited. And so what, he, what a counterfeit does is make something seem like it's real, but it's not. It's not authentic. And so the miracles are really nothing but magic tricks and parlor tricks 
You know, um, the magicians in Pharaoh's court were able to replicate what um, when Moses threw his his rod down and it turned into a serpent. But but they were not able to res- do what what Moses' rod was able to do. The serpent ate the other serpents. They were able to replicate turning water into blood, but the whole river, the whole Nile River turned to blood. It was overwhelming to them. A lot of these guys are are magicians. Magicians are good at illusion. They're good at fooling you. A slip of the hand, a a twinkle of the eye. Magicians make you think they have powers. They don't. Houdini was an illusionist. And so so are these other people. They're hucksters and illusionists. And they deceive people. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter... Um, and by the way, I come from a Pentecostal background. I've seen it. You know, there's a lot of power over the mind. You know, the, psychologically, you're in a hyped-up room and everybody's praying and they're knocking you down with your hands and all of a sudden the knee pain you had this morning is gone. But then you go home two days later and that knee pain's back. It's not a bona fide miracle. Uh, look with me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is what we have to be careful of. It says... In verse 8, and the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They're false signs and wonders. They're delusions. But people resist the truth. They love falsehood and they hate God. So people will believe whatever they want to believe as long as it's not the truth of the gospel. Any more questions? We have... Time for one more. Tony has a good question. Tony. Um, what about those who are uh, transgender or LGBTQ who have lost their identity? Do you think they're possessed? or? I wouldn't say that. Okay. I'd say they're... they're I think there's, there's confusion there. There's uh, obviously... There's godlessness at the core of it. There's no belief in God who assigns gender... That, that, you know, biologically your gender is what it is when you're born. I think that these are people who, who don't believe in God and don't believe there's a God who created them and has authority over them. And I think that they've just sucked into the, the modern age and the, modern, the postmodern age, I should say, where you could be anything you want to be. Truth is not truth and truth is relevant. And if I choose to be a, 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 a boy, I'll be a boy. If I choose to be a girl, I'll change my mind. It's all up to me because... You know, the existential crisis is that reality expresses from within, not from without. So it's really more of just a, a crisis of, of, of faith and a crisis of, of understanding reality. And so this is what happens when you have a society that turns its back on God. You have absolute confusion and base mind, baseless minds, right? Romans 1, 28 tells us that, right? God gives them over to, to debased minds. People can't think clearly no more. Right is wrong, wrong is right, nothing makes sense. When God's out of the equation, anything goes. It doesn't have to make sense. That's the whole point. It's nonsensical. Because if you live in a world without God, then it is nonsense. So I don't think it's demon possession as much as it is just the confusion of living in a world where, where you have such secularism and atheism predominating over people's thoughts. All right, thank you. One more and then we'll close. One more. Is that it? Anyone else? I said one more, but this is truly the last one. The Word of God clearly says the even the elect are going to be deceived, and uh, like you talked about false signs and wonders, how can we distinguish so we won't be deceived? Or it's God's sovereignty that the deceived will be deceived. Well. It says in Matthew twenty-four, if it were possible in the last days that even the elect would be deceived. But it's not possible. It's not possible. If you're a child of God, you will not be deceived. The Lord's, the Holy Spirit will give you discernment and wisdom and understanding. You, as a believer, you might be a little confused for a moment, but at the end of the day, you'll be able to 
distinguish between a, a true spirit and an evil spirit. I know that. I mean, you know, when I first got saved, I went to a charismatic church where people were acting really wacky, and, I, and they were claiming it was the Spirit of God, and I said, no, that's not the Spirit of God. I went home, and I knew these people were filled with demons. I had enough sense, and even, even as a young believer with no knowledge of the Bible, the Spirit gave me enough discernment, and I could tell if someone's running around their house with a face beat red and they're foaming at the mouth, that that's not the Spirit of God. Tell, look at me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians 5, it says, it says this, verse 5, First Thessalonians 5, 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are children of light, children of the day, we are not of the night of the darkness, so let us not sleep like others do, but as, let us keep awake and be sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk are drunk at night, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love with a helmet and hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, just as the day of God's uh, judgment will not take us by surprise because we belong to him, and so it is we will not be deceived by the tricks of Satan. We might be temporarily tricked, but ultimately God will give us the discernment and we'll perceive right away what, what Satan is up to. And so with that said, let me just end with this one thing, especially for some of you who come from a Pentecostal background. Just remember this. We spoke on this topic today, but any church that talks more about the devil and more about demons than they do about Jesus, there's something wrong. Get out of that church and tell your loved ones to get out of church because that's not healthy and it's not natural. It's an inordinate amount of attention on the forces of darkness come to church, you worship Christ, you exalt and magnify the name of Jesus, not of Satan. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this time where we have a question and answer period. Uh, please um, make us digest these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother.